Welcome to Screen Watching, our weekly podcast of discussion about the magic we're watching on screens of all sorts. This week we ask the question, what even is a sitcom as we consider the Rolling Stone top 100 sitcoms of all time? We're also having a chat with Weston Cage Coppola, he's the son of cinema great Nicolas Cage, and we'll of course dive into some reviews. This week we'll discuss the new Apple TV drama The Mosquito Coast, pandemic heist film Lockdown, and the latest season of The Girlfriend Experience, along with a whole raft of other movies and shows. As always, we've packed too much into this one show. Can you believe you're not paying a single cent for this gold? This is not like TV only battle. Television! Teacher! Mother! Secret lover. What, that's it? That's your movie? Well, I said that I had an idea for a movie. Hey there, folks. This is Screen Watching. My name is Dan Barrett. When it comes to the top 100 sitcoms of all time, I have opinions, but in the interest of politeness, because my mum taught me well, I'll go through the motions and politely introduce my co-host Simon Foster before we get to the good stuff. Simon Foster, are you well? Please tell me you're okay. I'm doing all right. Your mum taught me well as well. Look, she's a lovely lady. Um, I'm very well. (laughs) I did wonderful things this week. I got to see some... Films that certainly indicate that the award season is over, but we'll get to some of that later. I'm going to weigh in on what are some of my favourite sitcoms of all time, with uh, thanks to the Rolling Stones magazine. And um, boy, my chat with Weston Cage Coppola. I was warned that he was both humble and intense. Um, tick, tick. He is a man of, uh, uh, <laughs> of <laughs> intensity and humility in equal measure. So uh, hang around towards the end of the show for that interview Whew, that was exhausting. Yeah, look, when you say you're both sort of humble and intense, it just kind of sounds like it's uh, old Cage Senior. <laughs> yeah, a little bit like that, yes. He's not quite so cuckoo crazy as Cage Senior, but um, yes, it'll make for an interesting interview. Good luck with that one, everyone. Okay, Simon, we do like to kick things off these days with some reviews. How about we dive right into it? It stinks. Now, look, Simon, I don't know where you want to start, but the thing I'm really particularly curious about hearing from you is about the new movie, Lockdown. Can you tell me about that? I can tell you about that, certainly. What are you taking out of Harris? A diamond. It's a new day. Since lockdown, I'm looking back at myself like that was then, and this is now. Yeah. The bastards who told me to fire those people, they are bad. You and I are good, and good is better than bad. You're talking about stealing a diamond. Three million pounds. So in this latest cinema endeavour for one Anne Hathaway, she plays Linda, um, who's living with Paxton, played by Chiwetel Ejiofor. Now, just as they're about to break up, London goes into the COVID lockdown um, and they have to... I sort of live with each other through a, uh, a very tough period while being unable to get away. Now, for the first 50 minutes of Doug Lyman's film, that's right, this is directed by Doug Lyman, the guy who did a couple of the Bourne movies and Mr. and Mrs. Smith. They really just natter at each other, and they natter in the way that only two of great cinemas over actors can natter. Um, you're 50 minutes into this film, and as you pointed out, this is a, a heist drama, but there's nothing to suggest anything's going to be stolen other than two hours of my time by about the 50-minute mark. Uh, finally, it's revealed that Linda is involved with an events company who are doing a deal with Harrods and that a, a famous diamond has to be moved from Harrods into security. So she decides to try to get the marriage back together by um, uh, initiating a diamond heist. 
Uh, Chiwetel can't quite believe what's going on. Frankly, I can't quite believe what's going on. Um, <laughs> this is highlighted by some star cameos doing Zoom calls. People like Ben Stiller and Stephen Merchant and Lucy Boynton and, and Danish actor Klaes Bang. Um, they uh, play characters in Linda's life who she has to do Zoom calls with. So this is a COVID-19 um a pandemic film that touches on all those things that became very familiar to us, um, you know, pajama pants at business meetings and um, the English uh, NHS uh, pots and pan banging thing that they went through over there. Um, but in every other regard, this is a major misfire from everybody involved. Like I said, these are two of cinema's great overactors, and I'm a fan of both, but given sort of free reign to do what they do, this becomes pretty insufferable, certainly that first hour where they're just talking with each other about breaking up. Um, Alfred Hitchcock once said that drama is life without the dull, with the dull bits cut out. Um, this is a movie with all the dull bits put back in, and what you have is a film in which you feel entirely trapped. Um, it's kind of like Malcolm and Marie is directed by Ron Howard. Just everything about this doesn't cut it at all. So lockdown is a major misfire. That is brutal. Now, the thing with this film is that I think when you hear the name Doug Lyman involved, you're expecting something to be fairly kinetic and really lively. And the idea of him doing a pandemic drama, I was really curious to see what he'd actually come up with here. But yeah, when the reviews came out, I was like, ugh. And what I found fascinating is that HBO Max had this and just released it on a streaming service, barely even mentioning that they had it. And as yeah. soon as that happened, I was like, you know, this is certainly going to be some, you know, highly desirable magic. Maybe not. Yeah, look, I can understand why these actors and, and Lyman wanted to keep working through the, the pandemic and, and doing it in what is ostensibly a, a, you know, a contained environment is understandable. Um, but you could tell that the script quote-unquote script was rushed into production um, and that a lot relied on the screen presence of these two. And like I said, without anything to back them up, they just, um, it becomes a lot of screaming and yelling for very little purpose. Yeah, look, I love screaming and yelling, but I might give this one a miss. <laughs> Simon, can I have a chat with you about the new Apple TV show, The Mosquito Coast? What did he do? I'm sorry. Pack one bag, be ready in 10 minutes. How much trouble are you actually in? Enough. Not everything can be fixed. Of course it can. The trick is actually wanting to fix it. Ali Fox, his wife Margot, and teenage kids Dinah and Charlie are living off the grid in America. Ali, played by Justin Thoreau, is a smart guy who's a scientific wonderkin, and he's producing all manner of environmentally friendly, self-sustaining devices and processes. The pace and office, however, don't seem particularly interested in his ice-making machine that he's developed. He's really cranky his teenage daughter's been hiding his mobile phone from him, and if this starts to sound very familiar, it's probably because you've read the 1981 book The Mosquito Coast, written by Justin Theroux's uncle Paul Theroux, or you may have seen a Peter Weir film starring Harrison Ford. Now, because of Hollywood's unquenchable thirst for mining intellectual property, this is back as an ongoing Apple TV Plus series with a seven-episode first season. To make the series sustainable as an ongoing show, however, they've messed around with the plot. No longer are the Fox family simply some off-the-grid oddballs who believe in keeping government out of their lives and homeschooling their kids. This new interpretation has given them a shadowy reason for this. The Fox family are hiding from the authorities. What they did in their past, however, we don't know. But a lonely Margot has phoned her parents, which catches the attention of the feds. So now the family's on the run heading to Mexico, which opens up the show to a series that's heavily inspired by other programs like Ozark and Breaking Bad. Reviews for the show have been lukewarm, with many critics unhappy with the direction the show has taken. 
Many of the same critics have unfavorably compared the series to the book and the movie. I came to the series cold. I knew of the source material, but that's as far as my familiarity went. And I think it's absolutely a fair criticism of the show that it's not doing anything new. The influence of Breaking Bad is just oozing off the program, but that didn't stop me from being enthralled by it. As proven in The Leftovers, Justin Theroux is a highly compelling series lead, and he doesn't disappoint here. While the show is not visually ambitious, everything about the show does look great, and it's quite clearly a show that wasn't really cheap to make. Luther creator Neil Cross has writing credits on the first three episodes of the show, and he's done a really great job in providing a series of great tense set pieces. Don't expect to reach the titular Mosquito Coast within the first episode, but I was happy enough to embrace the familiarity of the show, and the first two episodes of the series do establish the show as one I'll be eager to return to every Friday night for the next five weeks. Simon, I'm not sure if you've checked this out, but I'm sure that you've seen at least the film The Mosquito Coast. I've certainly seen the film. I recall it being kind of a big deal back in the day in that it was Harrison Ford and Peter Weir's follow-up to Witness, but it did stumble at the box office, only really found its audience in the later years after its cinema release. Um, I've dipped into the first episode of this new Apple TV Plus series. I agree that Justin Theroux a very compelling league and it's wonderful, a lead, and it's wonderful to see um, Melissa George... Uh, as the wife, the the sort of the suffering wife, uh, played by Helen Mirren in the film. Um, but yes, I agree with everything else you say that that although it looks quite spectacular at times, um, it's a, it feels fairly familiar. Um, I've, I'm going to have to wait for a few more episodes down the track to to cast a, a, a more firm opinion on it. But I think it's got potential, hopefully for growth over the the, the coming episodes. Yeah, look, I am a little bit nervous because I've only seen the first two episodes and most of the critics who did review it have seen a couple more than that. So I don't know, maybe they're coming out from a more educated standpoint. At the moment, though, I'm ready to go with the ride. So look, I'm interested. We should point out that the, an element of the story in which they're on the run from the, the feds, um, that's been added in entirely for the series. That wasn't in the movie and certainly wasn't in the book. So um, that gives it a sort of a more forward propulsion that, that the TV, a TV series requ- requires than the movie. Um, and although I think Justin Theroux is around the same age as Harrison Ford was in the film, um, that movie uh, played a lot more older. The, so this is a very young family. Um that movie was was sort of aimed at a, a maybe a, an older demographic than the series is, but that's just the nature of the business. So keen to see where it goes. Look, I think actually it's really interesting that you say that. So I watched the movie for the first time in between watching episodes one or two of the show because I was kind of curious to know what the differences were. And it just kind of plays a little bit more in that idea that I think about quite regularly, which is that people these days are just younger. So you think about like the sort of more mature Harrison Ford, who'd be roughly the same age as Justin Theroux, 20 years ago, like, I just kind of feel that people were maybe about, like, 10 years older than you'd really consider them to be these days. So, like, I think about, you know, my friend Simon Foster. And Simon Foster, being the age that he is, like, 20 years ago, I would have thought, oh, that's kind of like an older guy. But these days, it's just like, eh, it's just Simon. Like, it's, It's you know, you're just like the same sort of, you know, immature goofball that, you know, you probably were 20 years ago. Well, that's very true. But there's no societal sort of detriment to that. Like, people are just expecting that people do act younger and feel younger and aren't necessarily sort of in that position where, you know, Harrison Ford was very much a dad who is, you know, leading his family in a very specific way. Whereas Justin through here, he certainly takes on fatherly elements, but he's also his own man and is characterized by other things. And I think that's just kind of the way that people are these days. You heard it here first, everyone. Dan Barrett thinks I'm Harrison Ford, and I'll go with that. So thank you very much, Dan. We should have a look at a new 
a creepy chick movie called Fatal. Look, I have a marriage to protect. You're afraid I'm going to expose you to your wife? It wasn't a robbery. Can you think of anyone who might want to harm you? Friends? Family? Or a woman you screwed? And discarded? Creepy chick movie. This is going to get us cancelled. Okay, Simon, what's the deal with the film? <laughs> All right, so just reminding everybody that we are, in fact, well outside of the awards season. Hilary Swank, who's won two Oscars. Can you believe that, watching this movie? Um, she plays a woman who picks up Michael Ely, who stars as Derek Tyler, um, in a, a Las Vegas bar. They have a very steamy night of passion. Uh, what Hilary doesn't know is that Michael is, in fact, married Um but when he is attacked late one night back home in Los Angeles, um, it turns out that Hilary Swank is the investigating detective. Now, things go well off the rails here, and I'm not going to try and weigh in on the intricacies of the plot because it becomes very soap opera-ish and very melodramatic. Let's just say that back in the 90s when... Um, and, and it's certainly hinted at in the title, when there was a lot of movies with the words fatal and obsession in the title... Um, this harkens back to those times. Um, it just is a shame that the uh, the words Joe Esterhouse aren't attached to this film because he used to be able to turn these into um, rollicking, good, um, crazy airport novel kind of movies. He made, of course, Basic Instinct, um, which is the granddaddy of, of all these types of movies. Um, and Hilary Swank, who clearly needs some box office clout to her name was going for some very commercial material with this but overall it's just a kind of clunky kind of ridiculous sort of dip into um obsessive compulsive behavior and a plot that just keeps uh, folding in on itself until my eyes were sore from rolling them so um once again this one is stumbling into cinemas uh in between the oscar season contenders and the bigger american summer movies which are just a bit further down the track um if you really have to go to the movies this weekend maybe give it a look but otherwise uh, get out in the sunshine yeah look i don't think i'll be doing either <laughs> getting out in the sunshine or going to the movies yeah exactly well at least suddenly not to go and see this <laughs> Uh, interesting you mentioned uh, Basic Instinct in there, because that's getting a cinema re-release in a couple of months' time. We're very excited. Look, it's been given a 4K restoration by the people at, at um, Studio Canal, uh, and it was always a beautiful-looking film in, in that kind of um, mohair jumper um, way that, that uh, Michael Douglas brought to the role. So, yes, it is going back to the big screen. I think I'll check it out. I actually haven't seen it since its cinema release. I thought it was kind of a crazy crackpot kind of a movie, so I'm keen to see if that holds up. Yeah, look, I haven't seen the film since it would have come out on, I guess, VHS back in the day. And of course, because I was a grotty teenager, I had to give it a bit of a gander. Uh, but yeah, I haven't seen it since. So I'm really curious to see how it holds up as a film for adults to go and watch. Hitting stand this week is season three of The Girlfriend Experience, which you managed to have a look at. Let's look at vocal patterns. Cadence, pauses, speech modulation, or as you neuroscientists would say, anything related to self-expression and the release of happy hormones. <laughs> people's personal experience of what turns them on. It's not about what they want, but how they're feeling about it in the moment. The object of desire is a foil. 
One of the more unique anthology series is The Girlfriend Experience. Now in its third season, the show tells modern day stories about women working in the sex industry and the balance they strike between living a normal life within polite everyday culture and working a job that connects to carnal interests that exist beyond what everyday people are willing to admit to. Replacing Amy Simons and Lodge Kerrigan as writer-directors on the show is Anya Marquardt, who has written and directed this new season. Like the former showrunners, Anya keeps the show feeling cold and distant. This is a show that explores eroticism without being sexually erotic itself. Series lead Juliana Goldani's Hallies, who people would know best from roles in The Affair and Bunheads, is perfect in a series like this, exuding a steely analytical exterior. Telly stars here as an American neuroscience student who's working for a London-based tech startup that's focused on understanding human behaviour. Her out-of-hours job informs her day job and vice versa. What's interesting about the show, and the role of narrative in the program, is that the story itself doesn't really matter. In a way, it's kind of an intellectual pornographic exercise. I don't mean that derogatively. The plot of the third season matters less than it does in previous seasons, at least in as far as suggested by the first two episodes of this season. Instead, the show's kind of like pornography in that the setup is only important in that it gets use of the highly charged scenes that explore the idea of sexual gratification. The show's about those moments, those scenes, and the rest is all stitching. The girlfriend experience won't be for everyone. It's too sexually charged for some tastes, but not overtly sexual enough for others. I find it to be a challenging but satisfying watch, and this new season is the most curiously interesting one yet. The Girlfriend Experience Seasons 1-3 are streaming now on Stan, but you can jump into any season without having seen the others. Now listen for some podcast gold as I put in a very subtle sound effect in order to mask the difficult transition from this past review into the next one. On average, one woman a week is killed by a current or former partner in Australia and uh, presenter and investigative journalist Jess Hill takes that as the starting point for this three-part documentary series see what you made me do based upon her book um, should ignite uh, a very crucial conversation about domestic abuse um, which in all its forms um, is is at a, a shocking epidemic levels around Australia at the moment um, this f- documentary series is um, filled with first person interviews um, that dictate and, and document all the different and various forms of abuse that women and men and children around the country have to suffer through on a all too familiar and regular basis um and jess hill out front is a terrific presenter who um makes the conversation ignites the conversation with some valid points and her own um first person uh, attending with the, some of the, the the violence victims um if you are in immediate danger, call O triple zero for police and ambulance. Self, of course, there's a a lot of uh, numbers to call. Lifeline thirteen eleven fourteen, the New South Wales Domestic Violence Line on one eight hundred six five six four six three, and one eight hundred seven three seven seven three two is the White Ribbon Australia Line. Um, this documentary has been programmed during Domestic and Family Violence Prevention Month, um, and SBS are accompanying this, the, the three weeks of screening with a whole lot of content across the network exploring domestic abuse in all its forms. Um, the first uh, episode premiered on uh, last Wednesday night, the 5th of May, um, and the three-part series continues weekly. Every episode will also be on NITV and on SBS On Demand. So it is an important 
document um, that will be referred to for years to come, the way it absolutely puts into perspective just what a terrible scourge on Australian society domestic violence is, um, and it's a, it's a landmark documentary series. Simon, it's probably time that we start talking about the interesting news of the week. Can we kick off with Rolling Stone had a list of the top 100 TV sitcoms of all time. Now, Simon Foster, uh, I don't know if you've been through this list as thoroughly as I poured through it. I thought by and large, this was a pretty good list. There were some sure. criticisms that I saw online saying, oh, it's very American. But also I would maybe sort of counter that and say that the sitcom as we know it is very much a creation of American TV. And the good majority of sitcoms ever produced have been American. So it makes sense to me that it's heavily overweighted by American programs. But the list actually does have quite a few sort of deep dives into British sitcoms particularly. There's an Australian series that makes a bit of an entrance in there. By and large, I think it's a pretty good list. I would say, though, that there's a couple of shows on there that are listed as sitcoms that I don't think really classify as sitcoms. Uh, included in yes. that is Bluey, which is the Australian animated show. Uh, Bluey, mm. it's certainly got humorous moments, and I think Bluey is a very good TV show. I don't know if it's a sitcom, though. And also, I look at, like, SpongeBob SquarePants makes it into the list. That falls into that Bluey category of, you know, it's a funny animated show. I don't think it's necessarily a sitcom in the way that The Simpsons, which is on the list, is definitely a sitcom. But how did you feel about okay. that? Well, you're opening up a bit of a Pandora's box because this means we're going to have to dive into what exactly is a sitcom now. As you well, know, it's a it's nebulous short... term. And your view as what a sitcom is is quite different to probably what mine is, which is quite different to obviously what Alan Seppenwall and company at Rolling Stone feel. Situation comedy, which implies that it takes place in a, more or less a single setting or that it sets a, a tone and finds a setting that is... Um, you know, remains constant over the course of the series. Um, I guess in that regard, Bluey works. And I've only seen a few episodes of Bluey, but you're right. And certainly SpongeBob SquarePants, it could be squeezed into that definition. Um, there are other ones on there. See, is, you know, and, and then you start getting into arguments about the multi-camera comedy. Is, is Modern Family with its many different locations or um or Shit's creek which sort of stumbles in there at 100 which i thought was a bit of a short shrift on the the comedy of the moment is that a situation comedy maybe the situation maybe the situation is the town so it, it you're, you're absolutely right in the word that you use it is a nebulous um definition of what a what a sitcom is yeah so there's a like i can certainly see the argument that people would have which is that Sitcom was effectively a bit of uh, quick phrasing that people could use to talk about a, a stage set comedy. So very much multi-camera, on a stage, three walls, a studio audience. And when we look at that, we know that that is a sitcom, like it has the look and feel of a sitcom. And there is no arguing at all what that is. But it hit the late 90s going into the early 2000s. And that traditional sitcom sort of fell away. And I'd look at that show like The Office and The Office... Hmm. Well, I'm thinking particularly Office US rather than Office uh, UK. But The Office US is a sitcom. Like, it doesn't have the laugh track. It doesn't have the studio audience. It's got four walls around it. It's got really sort of one camera for the most part. Like, it's still a sitcom, and it's hard to really argue that it isn't a sitcom. So when you look at shows like that, you need to start evolving the idea of what a sitcom is to you. And it comes down to that phrase, sort of situation comedy. And where The Office is a sitcom to me... Bluey isn't because the main sort of like drive for Bluey 
isn't the comedy element. It's very much about the situation and mining that for drama as well as, you know, the occasional sort of human doggish moment. It's not necessarily that it's a funny laugh out loud show, even though it can be funny. It's like, think about The Sopranos. The Sopranos, think about, okay, The Sopranos, Mad Men, a whole bunch of these shows that we think about being sort of premium drama series. Like, they're drama shows, but no shows have really made me laugh harder than both of those two examples. Like, they can be sure. funny without being sitcoms. And so, I don't know, you, like, you really need to sort of draw the line where it feels right to you, but I don't know, suddenly Bluey isn't for me. So that raises the interesting question of what are our, we're not going to go through our top 100 sitcoms of all time, but I thought you and I, Dan Barrett, would look at our top five sitcoms at all time, maybe counting down uh, the, the, the sitcoms and why we love them so much. I'm going to start. Uh, number five for me is MASH, uh, a show that um, I mostly caught in, in uh, first run, but certainly indulged in as a repeat title. Um, and it has shown the test of time. MASH to me was that just wonderful mix of character comedy slightly kooky you could see alan alder's um uh, love for the marx brothers and and some of the craziness that they got up to in this korean war setting um plus it had lots to say about uh the horrors of war so mash is my number five you know i've always struggled with mash a little bit because of the laugh track when they released them on dvd back in the mid 2000s you had the options to turn the laugh track off and I found the show so much more watchable when I was able to strip it from that. And I don't. And really I think the to... produce. I think the producers had a terrible time with the laugh track as well. That was imposed by the the network, and they came to a uh, uh, they came to an agreement that there was to be no laugh track during the surgery scenes. Thank goodness for that. So um, there was some compromise there. At number four for me now, this I think is one of the great sitcoms. Didn't make the one hundred. Um, the British comedy The Young Ones with Rick Mayle et al. Um, for me, uh, The Young Ones was a great situation comedy, certainly confined largely to the squat of the four students in the in the in the series, um, but just went to some totally anarchic places that uh, that few uh, sitcoms have ever gone to. So number four is The Young Ones. You know what, that probably brings in the big sort of issue with television here that I don't think that lists like this are really sort of uh, that cognizant of. Television is such a reflective like mode of entertainment that is reflective of the moment of time. So I think The Young Ones is a show that when it came out, it certainly really reverberated through what was happening at the time and I think could easily be considered one of the best comedies that were on at that time. I don't know that it's aged particularly well. And when I look back at that, I don't really see the elements of it which make it a great sitcom anymore, but it certainly was for the time. And TV, what I love about it as a form is that it's not forever and that really something can last about four or five years and then it just stops really having that cultural relevance anymore. And to me, The Young Ones is that, but certainly you sort of grew up with it. So maybe your relationship with that show is quite different to my own. And I'm and I'm absolutely the first to admit that some of the great sitcoms of all times, things like The Odd Couple, things like Mary Tyler Moore, um, things you know, they're not going to make my top five. Although they would have made my top ten. I should point out that things like Veep didn't make my top five. Uh, Murphy Brown, Barney Miller, Community, Thirty Rock. These are all shows that I absolutely adore. The Larry Sanders Show, um, but I couldn't squeeze them into my top five. Top three. Hey, look, for sorry, me, just, sorry, just think about that list you gave. I think almost all of those shows actually still hold up remarkably well today yeah. and still have cultural relevance. The one in that title, though, is Murphy Brown. I went back and tried watching some original series Murphy Browns. That show is actually terrible. I totally understand why it's 
I, I felt, I understand why at the time, like it felt like it was one of the funniest shows on TV and actually really had a lot of relevance. But mm. like, it's not even just an issue of like topicality, the actual sort of joke structure in it, like it's just not actually funny anymore. Like you watch mm. it and there's just nothing to really grab onto these days. It's a really unique watch and I encourage people if you can, jump on YouTube, you can find a few old episodes of Murphy Brown there. There is something about that show that really does not work as a comedy at all anymore. But as a workplace comedy, something like Mary Tyler Moore, which certainly spoke to the changing social times, um, I think still does work, is a very character-driven um, uh, piece of work that comes across as some of the, with, alongside some of the best 70s entertainment of its day. But yeah, I couldn't squeeze it into my top five. The character work still works in that, but also the joke rhythms still work in a way that Murphy Brown's joke structure just doesn't work anymore. Exactly right. Um, number three for me, and this sort of bounced around my top five, but The Simpsons, of course, no show. And it was number one in the Rolling Stones uh, 100 sitcoms of all time. Spoiler alert. Um, certainly those first few seasons of The Simpsons uh, uh, just are, are some of the some of the best writing, some of the most clever comedy ever put to, to television. Um you can bicker that the last 20 years of the sitcom probably hasn't been to that level. Few shows have. Um, and uh, I think there was enough in that first, which is the point made in the, in the Rolling Stone article. There was enough good stuff in that first decade um, to carry the, the, the legend of the, of the Simpsons through. Oh, look, absolutely. I think that's completely spot on. Yep. Number two for me, The Great Faulty Towers. I think uh, John Cleese came out of the Monty Python period, um, desperate to, to put his stamp, his personal stamp on a comedy, and uh, few have succeeded like Faulty Towers. Yeah, uh, that show probably wouldn't make my top 20, but I certainly understand why it's in your top two. And number one for me, um, I certainly, uh, because of its age, it came in at number three on, on the top 100 sitcoms of all time, is Seinfeld, uh, a show which I, has proven for me to, to be the repeat viewing title and um, has in, sort of infested my mind for the last 30 odd years. Look, that phrase infested my mind is exactly how I feel about both Seinfeld and The Simpsons. Like, no two sitcoms have had a greater influence on my day-to-day -day life than those two programs. And so, when I came to that Rolling Stone list, I thought, the top three shows are going to be The Simpsons, Seinfeld, and Cheers. But what order will they be in was really the big question I had coming into it. And I'll admit my bias in it. When I think about my top three sitcoms of all time, it is The Simpsons, Seinfeld, and Cheers. And honestly, I don't actually know what order I could put them in because I think on any given day, I'd probably swap those orders around. Today, yep. I'd probably say Seinfeld, Cheers, The Simpsons. But I don't know, tomorrow it'll be entirely different. But those are my top three. Other shows which would probably make my top five if I could be a little bit... Like, you know, it's a not without my daughter situation. I can't necessarily just cut this down to five. But like those three would be my top five. I'd also throw in the British uh, comedy series Catastrophe. There's something about that show that just spoke to me entirely. It just has not left my mind since that four-season run. Have you seen Catastrophe? I have, yes. Wonderful. The the great um, Horgan. What's her name? Sharon, uh, Sharon Horgan, Rob Delaney. Sharon Horgan. Yeah. Yeah. Like, it's so personal. It's so specific. And I don't know, it just connects to me in a really big way. Uh, a show from the UK as well, Peep Show, is a show which mm -hmm. is just incredibly close to my heart. Uh, and then the other thing that I thought really should have made the top 100 list of your Rolling Stones, and it didn't make it in there at all, even though I think it has absolutely all the hallmarks of a great influential series that had great sort of cultural resonance, is incredibly funny, Batman 1966. Yeah. Now, I, I never really... Well, 
I never really appreciated how good that show was until I started, I was working at SBS a few years ago. They had the program and I started doing a podcast for them about the show. So I've watched every Batman 1966 episode in a row, analyzed it, gone backwards through it, gone forwards through it. I have seen so much Batman 66 and it might be Stockholm Syndrome, (laughs) but there is something about that program which is so incredibly good that still mostly holds up today. Like, it should have been in the top 100. I'm not sure it necessarily needs to be in the top 20. It's in my personal top five. But, you know, it still needs to be in that top 100. I thought that was a really big omission. Uh, A couple of other omissions from there I felt as well. Uh, There's Happy Days, which should have been in the list somewhere. Certainly not top 10 or top 20, but, like, it deserves to be in the list. Uh, UK comedy series Coupling, which I think was both very funny as well as quite sort of culturally resonant at the time and still holds up reasonably well today when you watch an episode. Uh, there's also a sitcom which was really little seen called The Carmichael Show, which is a... I, I can understand why a few people watched the very early episodes of it and found it very on the nose, but that show really uprooted the idea as to what a culturally relevant sitcom of the modern era can be and really did some really unique things while also being exceptionally funny as well. It was the top 100 show. I don't understand why it wasn't. Was there an Australian series that Rolling Stones overlooked that should have got mention that should have been put in there um look i mean the only arguments i could really make is for look you've got frontline which should be the obvious sort of go-to answer for that i don't think frontline holds up that well anymore because it's so specific to what was happening in terms of current affairs television culture of the moment that i think a lot of the jokes don't actually really necessarily land in the way that they did back in the day but you know i can certainly see the argument for that uh whether it's a top 100 show or not i'm not too sure um, I'd also we had some. Make... I mean, we had some great. Oh, sorry, we had some. You know, great television back in the, the early days. There's stuff like the Mavis Brampton show, and um, uh, but they were more sort of sketch comedy, sketch That's comedy that, that came out of the almost the vaudeville type of live experience, and and out of and out of the radio sort of comedy as well. So um, some of our landmark shows were a bit hard to squeeze into the the sitcom um, definition. Um, I'd actually be there to hear that's got to hurt. I was going to say I'd be there to hear an argument for more recent things like Rosehaven and Fisk. Sure, I appreciate Fisk. I don't know if it's even finished its first season on ABC TV right now, but like that show is just incredible. Yeah, no, you're right. There was maybe some Australia stuff in there that should have been looked at and and will age well, I think. So that's the top 100 sitcoms of all time. Uh, You can check that out on the Rolling Stones website or go to our Facebook page where I've provided a link to it and weigh in on what your top five are, what's missed out, uh, what should be in there. Um, Yeah, plenty to talk about. Now, Simon, something I want to talk to you about is there's some Mm. new technology coming out of the UK called Flawless, or at least the company's called Flawless. I don't know what they're actually calling the technology. I really want to talk to you about this because it kind of goes to the heart of the way that TV and movies have been changing quite a bit in the last couple of years. So what this software is, it's AI-driven technology that allows video footage to be adapted with the way that lip-syncing works. So if you think about when you watch a foreign language movie, we're familiar, like when you think about like dubbing for a foreign language show, your mind probably goes to like kung fu movies from the 70s and you've got the mouths moving and then you have the voice over the top. And dubbing has never been traditionally that good. It's changed a bit in the last couple of years. Netflix have invested a lot of money and resources into really improving the quality of dubbing. And we'll get to the Netflix of it all in a moment. But what this technology does is it uses the AI to make sure that lips are being synced up to a number of different languages being spoken by the actors. 
So there's a video reel that they're using to promote this thing, and they're using clips from movies like A Few Good Men. And what you can see is the classic scene with Jack Nicholson with a, you know what, the truth, you can't handle the truth. You've got mm-hmm. that happening, and they show Jack Nicholson speaking in a number of different languages. And yes. when it's happening, they've got him there in, I want to say there was maybe like French and Jap- uh, Japanese, and I think there's another language as well. Uh, essentially, there as well, yeah. Yeah, like you're looking at it, and his mouth is synced up perfectly with the mm-hmm. languages coming out of his mouth. So it'll work both ways. So a lot of English language content will then be able to be played internationally for local audiences. And for all intents and purposes, they'll be speaking the language of, um, you know, the audience watching it. But then also we'll be able to take shows from France or Japan or, you know, places that don't speak English and have that same experience here. It's kind of bringing like a true sense of equality of the video, movie, TV experience, regardless of what country you're in. And I was wondering, yeah. how do you feel about this? Because I feel that a lot of uh, film purists have some very traditional viewpoints when it comes to both subtitles and dubs. And this really lays an entirely new perspective on the argument. So what do you think when you look at this? Uh, going one way, being able to uh, dub Jack Nicholson and Tom Cruise and Tom Hanks, as you see in the clip in Forrest Gump, into the native tongue of the country that the films are going to, that is good. Um, dubbing is uh, a scourge on film uh, and has been for 100 years. Um, those international audiences have had to put up with subtitling uh, in their native language for a whole lot of American and English and English-speaking product, I should say. And a lot of dubs um, as well. So, like, there's the interesting thing where you'll find that, and I don't know about Jack Nicholson specifically, but there's a lot of actors where there'll be one actor, say, in France who is responsible for all of Jack Nicholson's movies, and so he is the voice of Jack Nicholson in France. Yeah, and this technology will get better and the lips will be even better. And um, so that that's great. Coming the other way, taking the French language out of French actors' mouth or the Japanese language out of Japanese actors' mouths um, to make them more uh, palatable to English-speaking audiences. No, 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 no. I will not, I will not stand still for that. Um, they need to be heard in their native tongue as much as... Uh, they deserve to hear American actors and English-speaking actors in their native tongue as well. So why is it necessarily of greater cultural importance for us to be able to hear a Japanese voice as opposed to someone in Japan hearing an American? Well, I think because it is so um, endemic to watching film all over the world that um, they've had to tolerate is too strong a word maybe, but they've had to compromise their viewing pleasure to hear English voices speaking. Let me put it this way. Imagine if four out of every five things you decided to watch were subtitled, which is what French and which is what uh, international audiences have had to put up with now for 100 years of cinema and and 60, 70 odd years of television. So um, what we're trying to do is put... What what Flawless are trying to do is put... um, International makes cinema more international by creating these AI faces and moving the lips to, to sync with the, the native language. But why deny that native language coming back the other way to um, a, an English-speaking audience? Now, the upside of dubbing out international languages would be that maybe more people will go and see international cinema. I can totally understand that argument. But if it's at the cost of the... Um, 
exact nature and the inflections and the intricacies of the native language in which that film was made and that film was intended to be seen, then I think that's a bad thing. So I used to have a viewpoint that was very similar to what you're saying right there, which is that it's important for the native language to be able to be heard. And subtitles, I know, had no problem with subtitles. I think subtitles are fine. When I watch a movie with subtitles, I very quickly forget about the fact that I'm reading subs and it just becomes the movie. Like I don't really think about it um, as a different type of an experience. But my thinking has actually changed a little bit in the last couple of years. So the thing that really sort of really propelled my thinking initially was the way that I think Netflix really have upped the game in terms of their dubs. Generally, and I tend to do this with English language stuff as well, quite often I'll end up leaving the subtitles up on the screen while I'm watching, purely because even if I understand the language, sometimes there's a bit of dialogue that gets a little bit muffled, or my... Because TVs these days, speakers aren't necessarily great, so... And I don't have a sound system hooked up because I'm renting and I just can't bring myself to have to set these things up and set it, like, bring them down every couple of years. Uh, so, so I've got, like, dealing with just TV speakers. They're not great, so I leave the subtitles up. And I don't really see the difference between the integrity of a dub versus the integrity of a subtitle because when you have both up at the same time, you see there's actually quite a bit of difference between the way that a subtitle is presented versus the way that a dub's presented. And each are being rewritten with very specific sort of intentions in mind because when you're creating a dub, you need to pace things to the scene in a way that with a subtitle, you just kind of need like an economy of words. So like neither are pure experiences. So I don't actually necessarily have a problem with losing the original voice if, you know, I kind of feel that the trade-off's there. The reason why I'm very sort of pro-dubs these days is because I know how people watch TV and movies which is that they sit on their couch, they have their phone in their hand, and they're not really watching the screen intently. And when you're taking away the strong needs to be paying 100% attention to the screen, then people aren't watching these programs to begin with. And I think there's there, a greater cultural loss from that happening. There is no way I am going to allow the international film and television sector to pander to double screeners. <laughs> if you put a show on, watch the show. If you're not interested in how the film... Um, is presented in all its forms because you want to look away at another screen, then why should we cater to you? Because these are the people that make up the bulk of the audience these days. And without these people, Simon, the thing that you like is going to disappear. I don't think that's true at all. I don't think that makes up the bulk of the audience today. And I think a lot of the shows that we seek out, either as movies or on the the small screen, um, still uh, demand... So what you're asking to do is, is... artists and storytellers and the people that put these shows together is to say okay i think the best show we can make is this show but we have to sort of weigh in the fact that some people are only going to watch 40 or 50 percent of this because they're looking at their phones so let's let's compromise that okay first of all i think think you're being i think you're being incredibly naive to like not realize exactly how many people have their phones in their hand while they're watching tv these days you would be horrified to see the reality of this, Simon. Horrified, but it's a thing. In an ideal situation, you'd have the opportunity to be able to watch the experience however you want. Do I want it with dubs on? Do I want it with subtitles on? Do I want it with uh, this new flawless technology? I think it'd be great to be able to flip between all three. And I think that would be the ideal way to approach this going forward. 
But also, because I'm not necessarily like sold on the fact that you need subtitles, that you need dubs, I'd actually be quite happy with this flawless technology to become the way that the majority of people are watching stuff because I just think that there are biases that already exist in subtitles and dubs. You're not getting a pure experience anyway, so why can't you bring a greater sense of equality to the world by just having a voice actor be synced up with this for a very harmonious viewing experience? A greater sense of equality or a greater sense of blandness in what you watch? Because what you're suggesting is to take elements out of a show that were intrinsic to its creation. Um, I think one of the main reasons that um, international shows have proven such a success on um, Netflix and, and the like over the recent years is because they're bringing something fresh and new that international audiences haven't seen. What, uh, what, what's the um, uh, uh, agent's show, the French show? Call My Agent. Okay, so Call My Agent has brought this, um, what is essentially very what we all understand to be an American Hollywood type of experience, the world of the, the uh, show business agent. They've put this French spin on it. Do we then want to sort of pull that back from or the, the, the showrunners and from the showmakers and say, you know, we're going to take a little bit of the Frenchness out of it and just see if, and just see if you can make, to make it a little bit more palatable or, or to make it easier to watch. I think that's, I think that's at, at completely at odds with um, my belief in what uh, film producers and, and TV showrunners should do. Can I horrify you a little bit and point out the fact that Netflix's defaults is generally to have the dub track on rather than the subtitle track and I would say there's probably the good bulk of people watching Call My Agent around the world who are watching it in their native tongue rather than the original French. That's conjecture. That's a maybe. Sure, maybe. Uh, th- there's a reason but why maybe it's that's the default, because people. I'm telling you. <laughs> but that's maybe. Yeah, well, that's maybe because that's why. That's how some people like to watch well, it. It's because they're watching things. But that, while but that on their shouldn't. But that, but that shouldn't be. But that shouldn't impact upon how they they, they make the show. Well, I mean, the thing is, the show is going to get made. Like, Flawless is a technology that's being applied afterwards in the same way that a dub or a sub is. Anyway, right. sorry, just one other thing I want to throw in there, which is that both of us are coming from a position of considerable privilege here where we can both watch a movie with subtitles on the screen without any problems. There's people with visual impairments, of which that's actually a bit of an issue as well. And then I think about people like my mother, who... Slovenian-born, was raised speaking Slovenian until she's in her mid-teens, moved to Australia. She's a perfectly competent English language speaker, like it's her dominant language, Uh, but she has trouble reading subtitles because she just can't keep up with it because she's never really been able to read English to the proficiency that you and I are quite comfortable reading. So I do think there's a lot of people that do get left behind by subtitles on screen as well. So, you know, there's definitely reasons why you do want to choose a dub or something like this flawless technology instead. I think it's an exciting development and definitely a big step forwards in terms of replacing dubs on screen. How much did you pay for the neighbor's house? I understand that sold this week. Is this your money that's gone towards the purchase of the neighbor's house? Look, you joke about this, but I was actually seriously thinking about (laughs) buying the neighbor's house. So people who are familiar with the show Neighbours, you know Ramsey Street, you know that this is a real street that exists in Melbourne, not called Ramsey Street, but it's a suburb well out of Melbourne called uh, Pin Oak... Um, terrace, street, lane, court. I think it's a court. Pinot Court. Uh, but one of the houses went up for sale. It went for $1.6 million. It was a family who were formerly from China who didn't actually really know the show Neighbours or the cultural phenomenon surrounding it. So they just saw the house and thought, we'd like to buy this house. Fair enough. That's all cool. Uh, what they didn't know is that when they bought the house, there's actually the stipulation that you need to allow for the filming to happen on the street every couple of days. Uh, so that's a thing that they're actually quite happy about because you get a little bit of cash 
when that happens. So they were all right with that. You know, offsets that $1.6 million you're buying for it. But I was curious about buying it for this very reason, Simon. I thought, mm. why not put this up as an Airbnb and be able to make some money out of the fact that you can sleep on Ramsey Street? I think that you'd be making wow. quite a little bit of a mozza out of that as an opportunity to some British tourists. If there were British tourists anymore, and maybe that's a few years off at this point. <laughs> well, that's exactly right, yes. Um, do you think that price was driven up by the fact that one of the major selling points was that it is on Ramsey Street or it is on the street where Neighbours is filled? Do you think the real estate agent went out and said, hey, you can be part of television history by owning a house on TV's Ramsey Street. Look, there's a reason why people buy a car that may have been once owned by John Voigt. That's all I'm saying. That's very true. You make a good point. That's very true. The big news story of the week here in Australia is the impending launch of Paramount+. Plus. We found out on Friday morning that it's going to launch here in Australia on August 11th for a very reasonable $8.99 a month. So what are they promising from day one? They're saying that throughout the first year, and that was a bit of an interesting phrasing, uh, there's expected to be 20,000 episodes and movies that are going to be on the service. Now, compare that to the US version of Paramount+, Plus, which promised 30,000 TV shows and 2,500 movies. So I think it's important to note that the Australian number doesn't break out how many movies are going to be part of the service here. So that's a little bit interesting to me. Uh, it's going to be a cut-down version of the American service, but there's some elements to it that are actually quite a bit better than the American service. So there's very much a swings and roundabouts element to this. So what are we actually going to get? Uh, the reason why I would say that it's going to be better is because there's a deal in Australia where all the programs that are made for the Viacom CBS that own Paramount+, Plus, uh, they own a TV channel in the US called Showtime, and it produces some of the, you know, probably not necessarily your favorite shows, but probably your second tier sort of favorite shows. So things like Billions, for example, uh, what else they had? They had Black Monday, um, other current ones, uh, The L Word, Generation Q. They do The Circus, which is actually one of my favorite shows. I really like that when it's uh, running. They do some shows which are highly compelling programs. And so those shows that I just mentioned then, they'll continue to be on Stan, which had the Showtime deal up until December last year. But all the new Showtime programs are going to go direct to Paramount Plus in Australia. So what you're really paying for is Showtime content with some additional Viacom CBS archive content on top of that. So what new titles can you expect? There's a anthology series called The First Lady, which looks at all the very first ladies of the White House. There's a revival of Dexter, which wipes out the last couple of bad seasons of that show and just kind of pretends that they never happened. Uh, there's, and this is a bit of an interesting one, there's a show called The Gilded Age, which is actually made for HBO, but is making its way here to, uh, to Paramount+. Plus. So I don't quite know exactly how that's worked out. Uh, it all depends on who's making it and what the distributors are and whatnot, but that's an interesting one to watch out for. Uh, some things that aren't going to be here immediately, but are certainly in you know various states of production... There's The Man Who Fell to Earth, which is a remake of the Bowie film. Uh, also, Mayor of Kingstown is something which I think they have already wrapped production or is about to start. It's one or the other. But it's Jeremy Renner returning to TV. And then there's some things that are far off in the pipeline. There's a Yellowstone prequel, prequel series called Y1883. There's a TV series, a really long gestating show called Halo, which is based on the Microsoft video games. Now, that is a thing where they've pumped a huge amount of money into uh, Kyle Killen, who's a really interesting showrunner. He's behind this. Like, that is definitely going to be a show worth watching out for. Something I'm super keen on as a fan of the Tom Ripley stories and the Ripley movies. So, you know, the talented Mr. Ripley and whatnot. There's a series called Ripley coming. 
Uh, so there's some really interesting titles coming uh, to this service. And where I think the actual value though of the Paramount Plus isn't so much in the new shows that are coming, as good as they might be, but it's probably in the sort of archive content because a lot of the stuff from Viacom CBS are old classic TV shows that just haven't really gotten a run on streamers before. So you've got a whole bunch of beloved classics and these aren't things that you're probably necessarily watching every day, but you know, when the mood strikes, you might want to watch, throw back an episode or two of things like The Love Boats or Taxi, the old Mission Impossible TV show, Cheers, which is here on um, Stan, I think have it locally, uh, but you know, any opportunity to watch Cheers, I think is pretty good. They've got Family Ties on the US one, Eon Flux, the weirdo animated show from the mid 90s, one of my favorites, uh, Sarah Silverman program, Detroiters, Clone High, Wondershausen. If you've never seen Wondershausen, you got to check that out. But there's just all these great archive shows which exist on the US service. And the question I have as I look at the launch announcement is I've talked about all this new programming, but I want to know what older content are they going to have? Because they're talking about 10,000 less shows on Paramount Plus in Australia than the US. My concern is that some of those archive titles, the really fun, exciting titles that you have a bit of a, a big smile on your face when you come across them in a library, I, I feel that some of them aren't going to be there. But let's find out. Like August is only a couple of months away. We'll see what the actual offer is when it does launch. Something else I'd be very keen to see is uh, there's a number of studio-based shows, which makes sense in the US and on broadcast TV, but don't make a huge amount of sense on Australian broadcast TV but on a streaming service where it's just a title that you can sort of throw on there with limited investment, it makes a bit more sense. So maybe you could actually see the Drew Carey ledge uh, Price is Right. Maybe we could see Let's Make a Deal. Maybe we could see the daytime chat show, The Talk. Uh, if you look on Channel 10 very late at night into the early hours of the morning, you've got things like The Late Show, currently held by Stephen Colbert. You've got The Late Late Show with uh, James Corden, which actually plays here before The Late Show with Colbert, which frustrates me to no end. Anyway, like why are those shows buried in the middle of the night? Just put them on in mid-evening when they're actually made available from the US. Like it'd be great to have that available on Paramount Plus. So there's some interesting opportunities for Paramount Plus. We'll see what's actually on it when it does launch. The thing though that I think people listening to this podcast want to check out, Simon, is movies. You're a movie guy and you'd probably be excited to know that part of the initial launch uh, titles including, and these are Big name titles. You got the Godfather movies, Mission Impossible, Indiana Jones, Transformers, uh, Jackass, because who's not hanging out for that? Uh, you got Grease, Good War Hunting, Harry Potter films, Batman, The Dark Knight trilogy, Lord of the Rings, Austin Powers. Like, you know, there's some very cool, interesting titles there. And it gets me thinking about the fact that in the US, in the last couple of days, we've had the CEO of uh, Viacom CBS, Bob Backish. And he's been out there talking about Paramount Plus and where it's headed. One of the things he's promised is that through 2022, so yeah, we're in 2021, 2022, that's next year. Through 2022, they're looking at having a brand new movie debuting on platform, like an actual new movie um, every week of the year. And what I think is exciting about that is that these aren't just like Netflix pushing out movies. This is sort of big budget, supposedly big name Paramount movies. Anyway, Simon, what do you think? An entire year, new movies coming out every darn week. Made specifically for the streamer, you mean? That's, Absolutely. It's, it's, they're going to be commissioned for the streamer. Um, hey, I'm all for it. It's content. It, let's get it out there. That's what um, the Netflix team are doing to some degree. That's certainly what Amazon are doing, although they do it more through acquisitions. So, look, um, it is becoming a viable, or it has, let's face it, it has become the, the next or the, the equal stage of 
the exhibition scene now for, for the vast majority of films. Once again, I don't think, well, you know, we're sort of at that, that sort of right on the razor's edge at the moment where we are waiting to see if audiences do come back for the for the big screen experience or if um, it's really going to take just the really big movies uh, to get people back into cinemas and that's sort of that smaller mid-range film uh, will become the domain of the of the streaming platforms. So hey, I'm all for it. Paramount know what they're doing. Hell, they've been around for hundred years, so they'll. Uh, we should remember this is the business side of show business. So um, yeah, make it all happen. You just said the one thing there that makes me sort of really interested in this, which is that they've been around for a hundred years and they know how to market movies. The one thing that really gets yep. me about your Netflixes and to an extent Amazon as well is that neither do a particularly great job of letting you know when these big movies are debuting on platform. Like there just isn't really like mm. the enthusiasm and the excitement that extends beyond the boundaries of that streaming platform to get people excited about these movies. Like each of them become things you stumble yeah. upon rather than things you look forward to. That is exactly right. That is a, um, you know, I, I have often sort of harkened back to my days in the, in the um, uh, woe-begone home video industry. <laughs> yeah. um, and that is what was expected. Stores, video stores would expect that Columbia TriStar Home Video um, would have eight movies in their package um, on any given month. They didn't care what they were. They just needed that space on the shelf filled um, to provide that sort of range for the the new release renters and that's sort of what netflix and amazon and and the like do at the moment they they have a monthly release cycle the people expect a dozen new films and tv series to hit their um hit their tvs in that period of time and if they stumble across it if they find it if something about you know the press or the marketing or listening to screen watching sends them that way that's all well and good if not hey it's to the the vast depths of the Netflix back catalogue that, that a lot of these shows go. One final bit of news for this week. There is a lost George A. Romero film called The Amusement Park that's going to be dropping on Shudder from June 8th. Now, Simon, what is this movie about? Because I'll admit, until this morning, I had no idea this film existed. I knew of it by legend. I didn't know that the 46-year-old film had been given a 4K restoration and will turn up on Shudder, as well as some uh, screenings in the US and hopefully Australia. It'll be on Shudder on, on June 8. It is the story of an elderly man who um, is sort of slipping into senility, having mental health issues, uh, age-related mental health issues, and he finds himself in an amusement park and the roller coasters and the noise become a completely disorienting disorienting experience. Um, it is uh, many, many who have seen it consider it Romero's lost masterpiece. Um, we'll see exactly how much of a masterpiece that is come June 8. But the fact that it's been um, dug out of the archives i don't know the backstory as to why it didn't get a release back in the day so i'll do a bit more research on that but coming to the horror film streaming platform shuttered june 8 the amusement park is is kind of a big deal for us romero fans hey look can i tell you why it didn't get a release originally i think this this sure. is the part of the story that i just find incredibly fascinating okay so originally the film was uh financed entirely by the lutheran society they want us, oh. yeah, exactly. You see where this is going now. They want us to create a film that are, that raised awareness about ageism and elder abuse. So they hired George A. Romero to make this movie, and plot twist: they chose not to release the movie. Wow! So it's just been gathering dust in some uh, Lutheran warehouse somewhere, and <laughs> yeah, seemingly. here we are. <laughs> so good. I love that story. <laughs> 
Simon Foster, you spoke to an actor which, look, I'm very interested to see where this young man's career is going. Well, his name's Weston Cage Coppel, and now two of those three words probably sort of strike some kind of familiarity with our listeners. He is the son of Nicolas Cage, the grandnephew of Francis Ford Coppola. He co-stars in a new um, director digital release called Assault on Station 33, or for our American listeners, Assault on VA 33. Um, he plays Adrian Rabakov, a vengeful terrorist out to seek retribution against the US general who killed his brother. Now, Weston is obviously born of Hollywood royalty. He um, spoke to me from his home in Los Angeles about his latest film. Um, he's uh, the kind of work ethic that being part of the, the Hollywood A-list brings upon you and life high on the Hollywood A-list. Western Cage Coppola, thank you so much for being part of our, our screen-watching podcast. Um, Adrian Rabakov looked like great fun to, to bring to life. My question is, when, when faced with such villainy on the page, where do you shade it in? What colours do you give it? I really have to figure out where he, you know, his, his psyche started to transform. You know, I, I had to create a lot of memories that I needed to adhere to as his past to, because there was still a lot of benevolence in him, but um, I had to really think about that, what, you know, to, to, to add the dichotomy. It also makes the, the I think the, the darkness that much more profound when, you, when you're really going to uh, the past of a, of the, of the villain. These are fast films to make. There's, there's not a lot of time on set. Did you have a, a, a period of rehearsal time? Did you have a, a, um, a, a time to build the backstory? Um, I had a couple of weeks prior to, to start building. Uh, and then also, also um, on set, uh, there was, you know, just the direction from Chris Ray was incredible as usual. So we really got to another, another level um, with our chemistry. You, you work hard, you, you're making movies, you, you've got your music. What sort of work ethic does, does growing up as a, a Hollywood insider give you? A lot of people are trying to get to where you are. You came from that inside point of view. Um, what, what are the, 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 the strengths of that? And I guess, what are some of the drawbacks? Well, I mean, for me, it's, it's definitely the desire for catharsis. I, I need that spiritual uh, release associated with the kind of creativity that I um, you know, I, I live for, <clears throat> um, but at first it was hard. There's a lot of pressure. Um, the, the amount of, I guess, demand that's on, on yourself, you know, wanting to, to carry the torch or, or add to uh, the legacy. It's, it's, it was, it was very intense. Um, and there are a lot of people that thought that I, um, you know, when I was still going through my auditions and, and the rejection phase that thought that I expected things, uh, when, when, Really, I was there like every other creative vessel, but I guess that was the main drawback. But the the determination uh, and the energy that it, it gives us is the, the positive. How do you maintain that life balance? How do you 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 know life beyond acting, life beyond the the LA lifestyle? Um, what uh, what what creates a serenity for you? I definitely love the outdoors. Um, I'm I'm very much so. Um, nautical I, I like to be in the water as much as possible uh, so that's that's definitely where my, my serenity would come from you got to come down to sydney mate we've got the best beaches in the world uh, i miss australia so much i'd love to definitely so you've done some time here I, I couldn't find any sort of backstory as to as to if you'd been to this part of the world yes i've been to uh, melbourne and darwin and i had a magnificent time in both places uh, 
also uh, Lizard Island was. Oh wow! Where do you see your legacy going? Where do you where where do you want to be? I guess at the point where your father is in his career, and 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 where do you want to be able to look back and say, I mean, I was able to achieve dot dot dot. I mean, I definitely you know have the desire of the Academy Award. You know, um, I definitely want to to do you know. Uh, as many movies you know, I want to be as prolific as possible um, and to to grow as much as I can as a thespian but also to uh, I would tie it I'm going to tie it into something one day you know how Francis has his wine you know I, I kind of want to have my own like um, adaptogenic herb uh, company or you know I'm, I'm huge into uh, medicine like like herbal medicine and stuff like that, so. all right mate I hope we can see some of the uh, see some of the product down under It'd be great to to, um, to, to, to delve into that. Um, congratulations on Assault on VA33, or I think it's been called Assault on Station 33 down here in Australia. Um, where to next? What's the, the next six, 12 months in the wake of this ridiculous pandemic, this terrible COVID pandemic we've, we've got going? Um, how has the that shaped what the, the career looks like moving forward over the next year or so? I'm still... You know, looking for a, a, you know, forward to a couple um, opportunities on the horizon with uh, my acting, and then right now I'm working diligently with my music, constantly refining tracks to get the the best single possible, um, as requested. Working with my manager and everything, um, so I'm really um, liking what what's being created right now with the music, and um, that's one nice thing too is I can kind of switch modes, but. Um, I've been doing a, yeah, a lot of composition lately. Wonderful. Mate, it, it's a joy talking to you. Um, congratulations on the film and um, hope to see you down here soon. Pleasure. It was a joy talking to you as well. Thank you so much. Yes, he's a compelling individual, Western Cage Coppola. Assault on VA33 is available from the 5th of May, so it's already out there on Foxtel Box Office, Google Play, YouTube Movies and Fetch TV. Um, if you like a uh, good B-movie version of Die Hard, then check it out. It's got some shoot 'em up action stuff in there that'll make everyone happy. I do like to be happy. Simon, let's take a look at the week ahead. We've got a new comedy series, Girls 5 Ever, which is launching on Stan, and it's a comedy series in the vein of 30 Rock, looking at a former girl band from the 90s who are getting back together despite some setbacks later in life. And I've seen the first episode of it. I'm not as won over as a lot of the critics have been, but, you know, certainly give it a look if that sounds like your bag. Tina Fey produced, right? She's like, she's her... her her um, uh, touches all over. Look, she's suddenly producing it, but time has shown me that just because she has her name attached to a show doesn't necessarily mean much. Ooh, burn. Okay. Um, on Netflix, season one of a Korean drama called Mine. This is the story of a group of women who try to find their true selves um, in a very sort of patriarchal uh, society um, they struggle to get out from under the prejudices of their of their world um, I've seen a couple of episodes of this it is a beautifully made certainly beautifully acted new episodes coming weekly uh, season one out of Korea yeah, I saw the trailer for this it looked good and over on SBS On Demand, uh, Pandemic 2020, The Virus That Shook the World. This is uh, an enormous uh, documentary production that looks at the global impact of um, the biggest story, I guess, of our generation, the, the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, it comes at it from very personal points of view, um, runs 
for an enormous amount of minutes. It's very long. I've seen a little bit of this, not all of it, but it's a, it's a pretty extraordinary doco series. And debuting on streaming, we've got a movie. It's Oxygen. It's on Netflix. It's about a woman who wakes up in a cryogenic chamber with no recollection of how she got there and she must find a way out before she runs out of air. This is starring Melanie Laurence. Yeah, directed by Alejandro Aya, who we uh, know is one of the great uh, French horror directors. He's done the first Piranha film. He did The Hills Have Eyes, and he's doing his first Netflix uh, movie with Oxygen. Looking forward to seeing this one. Melanie Laurence is fantastic. And surely not the first Piranha movie. Yeah, he did the first Piranha movie. No, no, not not all the way back. Not the James Cameron one back in the 80s. No, he did the... Well, it wasn't a remake, really, but it was, uh, yeah, most recently. Didn't do the sequel, which was terrible. Now, was James Cameron not on Piranha 2 as opposed to Piranha? All right, all right let's clean that up. Uh, Piranha 2, yes, who did the first Piranha? I can't remember. Fix all this up in your edit. <laughs> Fixing nothing up. We're keeping it in. Don't keep it in. It makes me look stupid. <laughs> That's why it's staying in. Hey, there's some big screen <laughs> films as well. We've got Cliff Walkers, which is uh, playing in cinemas. This is the film, it's uh, four Communist Party special agents in the 1930s. They return to China after receiving training in the Soviet Union, and together they embark on a secret mission codenamed Utro. Now, I was going to go to the screening for this the other day, and I missed out, but apparently it's a very visually exciting film. It looks spectacular, yeah. It's got some uh, huge scenes in it. They've recreated the period beautifully. Um, I'm going to check this out on the big screen and maybe give it a review next week because it looks fantastic. At De Gaulle, uh, it's May 1940. The French army has collapsed and Hitler has seized Paris. The government considers accepting defeat, but two-star general Charles de Gaulle, played by Lambert Wilson, uh, he wants to change the course of history for his French peoples. Um, I hope this things is turn a- out okay. <laughs> yes, I think so that okay as well. Uh, Lambert Wilson's great in this. The film is a bit of a drag, i got to say. It's got that sort of stodgy uh, history kind of biopic feel to it. Um, but Lambert Wilson is great in the lead role, so maybe check it out if you're a history buff. And there's an Australian film called June Again, and this is June played by the great Noni Hazelhurst. Uh, she's been given a reprieve from an ongoing illness, and she reances the lives of her adult children and learns that things haven't gone exactly according to plan. Stephen Curry and Claudia Carvan play the kids. There's high hopes that this one will be a uh, another Aussie um, uh, box office hit. And by all accounts, it's not a bad little show. So worth checking out June again. There are some retro screenings around town uh, at the Ritz at Randwick. Um, a 30th anniversary screening of Boys in the Hood. God, I can remember when this came out. Um, there's a few 30th anniversary screenings of that around the country. It's also playing at the Dendy Newtown at the Lido in Hawthorne. So a landmark film from the late, great John Singleton um, certainly uh, launched a whole genre of um, uh, far more culturally sensitive African-American films and uh, featured very highly in the Academy Awards that year. Out of Africa with uh, Meryl Streep and Robert Redford. I've heard of them. Uh, that is playing at the Windsor Cinema in Western Australia from, oh, it is on May 9th at 1 pm. Up at the Darwin Deck Chair Cinema, it's the final days of the Darwin International Film Festival. Highlights include the Diff Spark Festival, which is a collection of shorts from Northern Territory filmmakers, and that's on May 8th. And on May 9, the Capricornian Film Awards, honouring the Northern Territory screen arts. The Darwin Deck Chair Cinema is a great way to watch movies, and the Darwin International Film Festival has uh, is really established itself as the, the, the top ends uh, leading film cultural events. So do get along to that. 
Now, kicking off May 13th, something that I am beyond keen to get along to, uh, Acme in Melbourne, you've got Disney, The Magic of Animation. And this has 500 original artworks, including painting sketches and conceptual art, going all the way back from Steamboat Willie back in 1928. And then a few little films you may have heard of, like Fantasia, Frozen, and Raya and the Last Dragon. And that last one, I'm pretty sure, is a new film. Now, this is something which isn't going to be easy for me to get to, but I think I might catch a plane and make this happen. Get down to Melbourne. Uh, the people there at Acme put on a, a fantastic exhibition. Um, I was there for the, the Tim Burton one a few years ago. And Disney, the magic of animation, was, um, it looks to be up there with some of their best work. And at the Golden Age, to celebrate the release of First Cow, which should have got a whole lot more Oscar nominations, the Golden Age is looking at the films of Kelly Reichert. She's been called the preeminent poet of the American West. On May 13, you can see Certain Women. On May 23, uh, one of her early films, Old Joy. And on May 30, her earliest films, River of Grass. Kelly Reichert does beautiful, slow, quiet cinema like um, no one else at the moment. And to see those films on the big screen, it's terrific that the Golden Age are, are presenting them. Now, when I read that paragraph, when he sent it to me originally, I did see the phrase to celebrate the release of, and I started thinking about the fact this film, it took a while for it to be released in Australia. And I thought maybe the reason was they were flying some of the stars out. So I was hoping that maybe the cow herself would be here present in Australia, but that isn't part of the publicity tour, unfortunately. Unfortunately, no, it has been eaten. Hey, this week in history, Simon, we've got a couple of notable things. May 7, 1987, we saw the final episode of Diane Chambers' character on Cheers, played by the great Shelley Long. She was wonderful. And on May 9 in 1980, the classic slasher film, Friday the 13th, why it wasn't released on Friday the 13th, I'm not sure, is released in US cinemas, so setting in motion a whole swathe of mostly good sequels. Uh, we've got the formation of Monty Python on May 11, 1969, which in its first form had Graham Chapman, John Cleese, Terry Gilliam, Eric Idle, Terry Jones, and Michael Palin. And I don't know why I said in its first form, because I'm pretty sure that's always been the crew. That's always been the form, yes. And on May 12, in 1984, Pulp Fiction premiered at the Cannes Film Festival, went on to win the top prize and set in motion, again, a whole genre of crime films which dominated Hollywood for almost the next 20-odd years. So uh, well done, Pulp Fiction. Good luck to everyone involved. I didn't realise it was sitting on a shelf for 10 years, Simon. <laughs> birthdays? Uh, boy, what a week for birthdays. May 8, 1926, David Attenborough was born in England. The great David Attenborough. May 10, Fred Astaire was born in 1899. Uh, come a long way forward, May 11, the wonderful Shira Haas. Now, you may know her as the young um, Emmy-nominated actress for Unorthodox. She was born in uh, 1995. And that great Catherine Hepburn. That's my Catherine Hepburn impersonation. Uh, May 12, 1907. And future Batman, May 13, 1986. Robert Pattinson was born in London, England. Happy birthday to you and everyone else having a birthday next week. Now do your Robert Pattinson impersonation. <laughs> um, I'm sparkling. I'm sparkling as we speak. That's how I impersonate you got to work on it. Let's workshop that one. It's not really as good as you think it is. Hey, I think it's time to sign off. Folks, thank you very much for listening to Screen Watching. My name, it's Dan Barrett. You can find me on Twitter at the Dan Barrett, uh, where you can find my half a million viral tweet from during the week. Big week wow, for Wow, that was impressive. You were impressed with that, weren't you? You tweeted your tweets. I've never gone viral before. It was quite impressive. And watching it tick up to that half a million, quite a good day. It was like almost 22 million impressions, Simon. That's a lot of people seeing that tweet. We get it, Dan. It's good impressions. Everyone's very impressed. Very much so. Anyway, 
People should start their day with my free newsletter, Always Be Watching. You can subscribe to that at alwaysbewatching.com for the big stories in TV, streaming, and film. And on Friday, I've got the Always Be Streaming newsletter, which recounts the week's big new shows. You can read my words over at ScreenSpace. That's screen-space.net, my regular answer about all things cinema. I'm on Twitter at Simon R. Foster, where no one reads my tweets. You can visit the Screen Watching Facebook page at Screen Watching Podcast for a very steady stream of screen news from around the world. Maybe just be better at Twitter, Simon. Uh, people can mm-hmm. like and follow Screen Watching via your favourite podcast app. You can load it up now and hit the follow button. Oh, what an exhausting week, Dan Barrett. Thank you very much for uh, being part of the Screen Watching Podcast and thank you to everyone out there for listening. Uh, look, I'm a big grown-up boy, but I still want to go for a nap right now. So folks, thank you very much for listening to the Screen Watching. We'll be back next week with more watching of screens and the discussion thereof.